Hey, it's Dr. Alicia Power. Welcome to the Pregnancy for Providers podcast. Today we're talking with Dr. Marina Mamuliti, and we are talking about how bad things happen in healthcare. And this conversation, frankly, took a bit of a turn I wasn't expecting. And we had a wonderful discussion around radical acceptance and what that means in terms of healthcare, that we all go into this business to help people, however bad things are going to happen. And that is just something, unfortunately, that we need to accept. But accepting that, we can also do some things to prepare for it. So one of the things she actually recommends is we do a preemptive self-care plan, an adverse event self-care plan which means we think about the worst case scenario and what we would need to do as individuals to help move forward after that scenario and create a plan. So what we've actually done is come up with a template so that you can download and if you're interested, do this yourself or bring together a group of your colleagues or your department to do it all together. So whatever feels good to you, but we've created a download. So check it out at pregnancy for professionals forward slash care plan and download it and work through it on your own and then feel free to share it with a colleague, with your partner, with whoever you think might need to, or just put it somewhere safe. So if something bad or when something bad happens, you can refer to it yourself. Hey, it's Dr. Sarah and Alicia here, and you are listening to the Pregnancy for Professionals podcast. Our goal is to bring forward evidence-based information from all disciplines, supporting pregnant people through their journey to becoming new parents. From physicians to midwives, nurses to physiotherapists, and everyone in between. Make sure to fill out the quick survey in the show notes to let us know which topics you are interested in learning about and to make sure we are serving you, our maternity care provider community, well. Don't forget, the information on this podcast is for educational purposes only. Please consult with your team and your community for individual medical decisions that need to be made. Check us out on Instagram at Pregnancy for Professionals to find informative and educational posts for both you and that you can use for your patients. Welcome, everybody. I have the pleasure of talking today with Dr. Marina Mamoliti, who's a psychiatrist in Toronto. And today we're going to be talking about how we as healthcare providers can help to recognize and create a plan around potential bad cases happening because we all know that they're going to happen. So how can we think about that, reframe it in our minds, and also prepare for that eventuality? Marina, why don't we start off by you telling us a little bit about yourself and how you've come to do the work that you do. Okay. Uh, hi, everybody. Um, my name is Dr. Marina Waliji. I'm a psychiatrist in, in Ontario, as Dr. Uh, mentioned. I am a bit by myself, so it's a bit early morning for me here. But uh, what I do is I do a lot of psychiatric care, general psychiatric care, psychotherapy, and I do some executive and boundaries coaching as well. And majority of my patients over the years have been physicians as well as dentists and um, lawyers and other high-stress jobs, first responders. And as we know that these um, professions are high, you know, as physicians, where our mental health is at much higher risk, we struggle with a lot of trauma and other things. And so the first responders and lawyers, if you'd be surprised, and dentists. In any case, so I do a lot of physician health work. I have treated physicians since I've started my private practice uh, for years now, since 2016. And not only do I work in psychotherapy on people that struggle with, but also, you know, wellness, how to maintain wellness, how to continue practicing medicine without necessarily having to carry the vicarious trauma and the burnout, right? And so I work with a variety of physicians in therapy to work um, after difficult events, including, uh, you know, a difficult patient events, but also lawsuits and things like that. 
as well as, you know, in general, kind of helping them create a career that they want to be in. You know, bad things happen in every specialty, right? Like things happen in medicine. So the way I talk is a general way to explain, to help people to accept is a concept called radical acceptance. So radical acceptance is a concept that comes from dialectical behavioral therapy. And dialectical behavioral therapy is a therapy that was invented by Marshall Linehan. It's one of my favorite therapy modalities. And Marshall Linehan is an American psychologist who invented this therapy for people with borderline personality disorder. And as we know, borderline personality disorder in itself um, is quite a complicated condition and carries about 10%. You know, one in 10 people will die from it. So this is a pretty, pretty good therapy for a pretty complicated condition, right? But a lot of the principles in DBT are applicable to other conditions and in life. And so radical acceptance is part of those concepts in this therapy that is applicable in every aspect of our life. And what radical acceptance says is basically we have to accept that life is going to have bad things. Life is full of pain. Life is full of disappointment. And it's really the distress in our mental struggle comes from, you know, our failure to accept that life is going to have bad things happening. And if you really think about it, that is what we get stuck with the most is the why things are happening. And a lot of us have kind of illusion that, you know, life is going to be either happy or stress-free or, you know, practice. As, you know, residents, as we go into practice, we think, you know, we have this kind of illusion that our practice is going to be somehow good or different than our residency or stress-free or we're going to have a control or, you know, it's going to be fine. Or like our medical practice will be fine without complicated cases, without any badness. And that is a false fantasy, okay? That, that is what it is, a fantasy. That's not reality. Reality is we're going to be disappointed. We're going to deal with difficult cases, pain, loss, death, complications. And, you know, sometimes people say, I've never been prepared for a case like this. Of course, you're not going to be prepared. Our brain, our imagination cannot possibly imagine all sorts of badness that can happen because we don't sit there and think about all sorts of permutations of badness that we can encounter because it's just not possible. Our brain cannot imagine that, especially if you're not a psychopath, you know, thinking about all sorts of ways that somebody's going to get harmed. So it's totally normal that we might not imagine all the potential badness we will experience in life or in professional, you know, experience, because it's just not possible. But we do have to accept the fact that badness will happen. That is radical acceptance. If we choose to practice medicine we have to accept that we're going to have college complaints. We're going to have sad cases we're going to encounter. We're going to see things the general public is not exposed to because, again, it's not going to be necessarily on the news. It's not going to be talked about. And luckily, it's not the experience of the general public to experience the badness that we might be exposed in a role as whatever physician we're playing to that individual, whether it's an obstetrician, psychiatrist, emergency doctor. So that is step one, is to truly accept that badness is part of our work. Badness is part of life. It doesn't mean that we engage in this helpless while life sucks. No, no, no. That's not radical acceptance. Radical acceptance is just accept that badness will happen. And what do we choose about it? That's the part two, right? And that is 
really the concept of dialectical behavior therapy is opposites are true at the same time, dialectics, right? And it focuses on acceptance and change. And what are we going to change? You know, life is hard. Medicine is hard. OB is very complicated in the context of actual medical, but also the interpersonal context of what you're dealing with. And what do you choose to do about that? And that is where people get stuck. That is where people get stuck going, oh my God, now something bad's happening, whatnot. And when we're looking at choices, what do we choose to do about it, right? That's where we have to look at our own personal choices. If something bad happens, what do I choose to do about it in terms of do I choose to have my own therapist where it's confidential and some skills and, you know, somebody can objectively confidentially support me? Do I choose to have a peer that I trust, you know, I could talk, you know, potentially discuss with? Do I choose to have my own set of activities that I know could be very helpful for me to go through a difficult time? Do I choose to potentially focus my practice area on the practice area that is less triggering for me or more rewarding for me or fulfilling? You know, there's my personal choice. What do I choose to do within the system or what do I expect from the system? You know, potentially, you know, what might be time to give after a difficult case for the OB or the resident or the med student to even just take time because, you know, we all react to things differently. It, it has to be individual. Not everybody finds the same event traumatizing. You know, some people might have a very different view on it. Do I choose to have something else in the system? And again, are there events? Because, you know, this is just the nature of the disease or a complication. Or was there negligence that led to that, right? Because that in itself makes things very different. If, you know, you encounter a bad OB case because that's just the nature of labor that was just not progressing or the nature of the condition that, right, that the infant was born with, because that's just the nature of the, of nature. Things happen. Badness happens in nature. Or is it things were missed or was it a systemic issue that somebody didn't have access to medical care to prevent this? Or was it that, you know, the patient didn't have the understanding or insight into the seriousness of this condition, right? Or is that we didn't have access to imaging or whatever other issues prevented us from, you know, realizing how bad the condition was. You know, and I'm thinking when we have people coming in from remote areas, you know, people who live in northern underserviced areas, at least in Ontario, you know, they often face real systemic barriers to getting good care that could result in devastating uh, impacts on them and on their bodies and their babies, right? So again, that's where we have to look. We have to accept that madness is going to be. And do we change our expectations and our behavior? Do we change the system and look within the system? And that is my biggest single piece of advice to anybody in medicine is to accept that we are going to have bad things in a life, you know, same thing I tell my children, you're going to be disappointed. You are going to have people who are not going to be nice to you. You're going to have people who are going to betray your trust to your friends. That is not a shock. That is the reality. And when that happens, what options do you have or what do you want to do? Sometimes you might be able to prepare. And other times what you prepare is Knowing who your supports are, knowing that the options are, knowing that you might be able to create that space to 
just think about your options. Because that in itself, right, in medicine, we often don't have the space, like literally the time to sit there and reflect and say, what do I actually need? You know, if you think about obstetricians and any physician, there's just, we have so much time demand, right? If you're on call as an obstetrician and something goes bad, or if you're the resident, barely anybody says, okay, you know, this just went really bad and there's a mortality and take your time or go home or, okay, go hang out for a couple of hours and let us know then what you need. And to me, that is step number one is actually asking the person, what do you need? Do you need to go home and think about it? Do you need a couple of hours in your call room? Do you need a couple of days? And again, in other areas, right, in medicine, people have access to that or even other jobs. Even nurses will have a very different you know, ability to potentially take a couple of shifts off or call in sick. As physicians, we don't have no, right? we don't. And even when I have learners, you know, medical students or residents, sometimes what we really have to do is, is to say, listen, this happened. I'd like you to have some time. Then you know, either go to the call room and take that time to process this and come back whenever you're ready. Or would it be better that you go home? Because, you know, we also don't want to push them because maybe they don't want to be alone with this intense emotion. Maybe they don't want to feel punished that you're sending them home, right? Because again, like how the, the resident interprets you sending them home is very different. So that's what I'm saying. You know, we can't really make a blanket uniform policies because people might be very different. I've had medical students who were paramedics previously. Them, you know, a paramedic who's now a medical student or resident is going to deal with a death very differently than a medical student or resident who's never experienced this or has a personal experience of a death or potentially pregnancy or pregnancy loss. We can't assume that everybody is going to react to badness the same or how we will. Because everybody has a different background. Everybody has different personal, professional, mental health background. And we really have to respect them. But to do that, we have to give them the option, non-judgmentally, non-shamefully, and to say, listen, respecting your needs, what do you need? And, and again, I had to do that with, you know, residents when we had complicated cases or, you know, bad things happen on call. And I had to respect it. Sometimes some people want to take a couple hours in the call room, but come back because they don't want to be stuck with this thoughts and feelings in the middle of the night by themselves in their home. You know, they might not be able to reach out to their therapist if they have there or their supports. So it might be fine that they want to stay the rest of the night in a cold room where they might need a break. And then they want to come back to work so that, again, that work in itself could be a distraction until the next day. And then they can reach out if they have existing supports or other things, right? So that is my thing. Number one is radical acceptance. Badness is going to happen. Disappointment is going to happen. As OBs, you are going to have bad events, people dying, babies dying, moms dying. That's just the reality. We hope that we don't encounter that reality very often, but that is just the reality. No different than every time when I get into the car. I have to accept the reality that I might get into a car accident and die. It happens every single day. People die. You hear on the news, you know, fatal car crash collision. 
most of us don't think of it, but that is literally the risk we have to accept when we get into the car. And many of us try to do things to reduce the chance, you know, maintaining your cars, driving safely, not driving impaired, driving the speed limit. We can't control the weather. We can't control random various where failures in the car, even if you maintain it. We can't control other people's behavior on the road. And that is like in medicine. We can control our preparedness and maintaining our skill level. We can control our alertness, right? And making sure that we're well-rested and that are alert. We can make sure we're not impaired by substances. We can ensure that we provided, you know, the treatment we think is best up to our clinical knowledge based on the information available, which might not always be available, right? We don't always have the information. And cooperation from the patient, because again, the patient might not understand what we know, the patient might not have insight, the patient might not understand the language, the health information might be too complex. So we have to accept that you do your best in things you can control. And with every shift, you choose to be a doctor. There's always a risk of badness. What do you do when badness happens? And that is very individual to each person. Because what one person finds helpful might be extremely agitating to another person, re-traumatizing, frustrating. You know, even things like when we talk about breathing, again, some people might find it violating. Some people might find it helpful. Some people might find it frustrating. And with the debriefing too, again, if it's enforced, anything that is forced might be just another way of feeling, well, it's just a systemic check. It's not really true. And if somebody has, I get a past experience, let's say they have their own personal experience of a traumatic birth or, you know, they had miscarriages or they lost in their own pregnancy. Again, the, the, the breathing, the force of breathing could be very difficult and might trigger bringing way more stuff than even the general person who's doing the breathing can handle. And you don't want to open up people either. You don't want to open up people and just leave them hanging. Because, you know, that is sometimes one of the biggest issues is that when people are so raw and they mention something and they see that the you know, person who was brought into breathing is overwhelmed, you know, that frustrates them too. So there's just so much sensitivity about the rights for the right person at the right time. How do you counsel people or how do you support physicians, residents, med students, any healthcare providers in figuring out what is going to be beneficial? Because like you said, we all know that bad things are going to happen. Some of us, more than others, are kind of planners and would love to be able to prepare for those bad things in terms of understanding what might be helpful for us. Do you have, is there a way that you counsel people or recommend to people to do that? Or is it one of those things that it's in the moment you just look inward and try to figure it out? No. So this is awesome. So I'm going to equate this to kind of like what we talk about with our patients with suicidal thoughts and crisis plan. Again, we're going to accept that patients are going to have suicidal thoughts. We can't avoid them. What do you do when you have the suicidal thoughts? Ideally, you have a crisis plan and you write down the different steps. At which point do you call a friend? Do you use your soothing strategies? Do you go to the emergency department or do you call 911? Because, you know, people are, have different stages of where they can do things before they need to come to the emergency department. So ideally, 
we would have this discussion with residents, with staff preemptively. Ideally, again, we would start from the point of radical acceptance to say, you know, whether it's your, you know, your lecture number one when you're welcoming your residents or medical students or when you have your new staff joining or even as a department sitting down and looking at what is your crisis just like when we do with somebody who has suicidal and and then everybody could do their own crisis plan or their own badness plan or their own whatever plan you want to call adverse event plan and again because we want to plan it when you're not in crisis you know again you want to plan it when you're not in a car accident you want to make sure you know where your things are if your car's broken down or where you're next and you don't want to be scrambling when your car's broken down in the middle of nowhere not knowing what your equipment is or batteries or blank. So ideally you do preemptively. And preemptively each person, again, could either share the crisis plan with whoever might be appointed in your department as that you know, wellness lead, you know, that identified kind of support person, because it can't be just anybody. So if your department has, you know, that identified, you know, wellness officer, identified wellness support, whatever you want to call them, maybe they could have a copy of your crisis plan. Or just sitting down as an exercise that everybody has their own crisis plan without sharing it. That might be fine too. And I, I, like, I go through this with my patient, you know, with my physician patient, you know, we will say, look, if this goes wrong or if this happens, Let's just go there and let's write up a crisis plan. Who are you going to call? What are you going to do? What, you know, and in that crisis plan, again, almost go through this visual exercise and you pick, you know, identify in their imagination what might be the most difficult case they could encounter. Kind of do this imagination exercise, you know, visualize, you visualize, visualize what is the most difficult case for them. Okay. And, and again, even the most difficult cases might be very different. For somebody, the most visual case might be, you know, a mother dying. For somebody, might be a baby dying. For somebody, might be both. Like it's, it's just so variable, right? Because what one person finds difficult, another person might find more tolerable. Still difficult, but not as devastating. So that in itself, we can't assume what is difficult for one person is, you know, different for another. You know, what I do is visualize your difficult case. Most difficult case that you can imagine. Again, what they can imagine. Not necessarily what can happen, right? Because... Our imagination is limitation. Visualize the most difficult case, okay? How, what would you like to happen afterwards? Do you want to speak to a colleague? You know, do you want to take them off? How many hours do you think you need? Do you want to have access to a therapist? Do you have an existing therapist? Because, you know, these days, luckily, more people have, you know, existing therapists that they might need to be able to call or reconnect and, you know, again, get a hold of, right? Or... Who would they like to? And the worst part is, Alicia, is that when we try to create this platitude support system, so where we say, oh, well, just call, or well, here's the number to call. And some of the worst issues are is when physicians do call or reach out, and the person who they reach out to does not have the capacity to support a physician, meaning their skills are not up to par and they are too overwhelmed by what the physician might be telling. Because again, the physician might be disclosing or, you know, I had to deal with an infant death and the therapist might not be able to cope with that. And like you could tell, you know, people in distress can tell the therapist is overwhelmed by their distress. 
You know, recently I was, you know, speaking to, uh, to a patient who was very frustrated because they disclosed his little thoughts to the therapist. The therapist was very overwhelmed. And that made the patient feel like, you know, they should sell boats too much, right? Like, so again, and for physicians, same thing. If we disclose something bad happening, if the therapist is overwhelmed, it becomes very frustrating because, you know, as physicians, we feel like, okay, am I damaging the therapist? Can this person actually help me if they're overwhelmed? Like, why am I wasting time? So you do have to make sure that if you have a list of therapists or if you have a list of, you know, number to call, that this number could actually validate in the support physician and the therapist can actually provide containment and the help the physician's looking for rather than, oh, I can't believe this happened. And, you know, the other thing sometimes what happens with therapists is as physicians, we have a very specific way of functioning, right? Like most of us work on sleep deprivation. Most of us work hours that are not regulated by unions, employment laws, or any of that stuff. So if you are disclosing and discussing some kind of, you know, difficult event, and the therapist tries to tell you, well, why don't you work less hours? Or, well, don't you get a break? Some of this very invalidating, unrealistic, unrelatable advice, it becomes extremely frustrating because then you, you lose faith that this therapist can actually help you because they don't understand that part of the issue is a system that cannot be changed with one person or a person who's actually actively struggling. You know, don't tell the struggling person to change the system by saying, you know, let's change our work hours. They're not in a place to change the department's work hours when they're struggling and the therapist tells them, tell the department to change your work hours. And most of us physicians have accepted this work hours that are not nine to five or union driven or even five days a week. Again, most physicians work more than five days a week. So when you do come up with help to be listed on this crisis line, we have to, again, be very realistic that is this help actually help? There's nothing worse than we list a number or a person and then somebody actually reaches out to them in distress and the person's completely incapable of meeting that need, further making the physician feel like they're too much or they're not understood or therapy's useless. I've seen a few male surgeons over my time where they were reluctant about therapy because they didn't know the uselessness of therapy because, again, they would feel like they're too much right? Or what is actual therapy? And once they actually did therapy and they realize what therapy is and how it could be helpful, it's a completely different story. But the most damaging thing is if they ever do reach out and the person on the other side tell, well, why didn't you sleep? Or how come you work 30 hours or 24 hours? That is a norm for physicians in certain areas. And that is not something we're going to be discussing in a crisis. <laughs> But it happens sometimes, you know, sometimes people get invalidated and very frustrated. Preemptively, have a new crisis plan. And on the crisis plan, listing either people they can contact that are predictably available and capable of supporting them. That could be physicians, you know, other peer physicians. That could be people who are paired up to be a peer supporter in your department. Again, if they choose to not forced appointed to be peer supporter trusted or existing therapists again crisis lines as well could be helpful because they could be confidential non-physician crisis lines of course 
are very frustrating because again, the people might not understand the context. So that in itself would be invalidating. In US, you know, a group of psychiatrists, right, had started during COVID, like a crisis line for physicians done by psychiatrists, which was extremely helpful. Unfortunately, we do not have anything remotely similar in Canada. You know, I've tried to claw my way around it in Ontario and I got not far. And I've been told, well, you know, there's a crisis line provided by a third party. It's not done by physicians. In BC, and we've got a physician health program, which has a crisis line. So it's for specifically but is it physicians. By physicians? Yeah. 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 So that could be it. like, if it's done by physicians, it could be so much more helpful. They were a bit overwhelmed. And so the actual ability to do anything was weeks to months during COVID. But I think generally speaking, it is quite a productive and quite a helpful. But I think um, even just talking to a physician, like as a crisis call is very validating. It led aside from, yeah, when they get into therapy. Yes, absolutely. But I think even just that first phone call when a peer takes it and, you know, validates it is such a big difference than when a non-physician answers and doesn't actually understand the gravity of what you're dealing with, you know, the systemic aspect of why something's so tough for you. Yeah. In terms of the, that being a department activity, I know for some people that can be really challenging. So how would you frame that to a department, having the group of the department do that? Would you give them that exercise and send them home to do that individually? Or would you actually encourage them to do it as a group if they're comfortable? I'm just imagining that would be very challenging as a, for some members of the department to do that. If a department struggles to do that, that usually tells me that the department lacks emotional and psychological safety. If you really have to think about it, our department or group of physicians that work together is kind of a place where you spend majority of your day, majority of your life for a certain number of years, because you literally spend so many hours working as a physician, right? And as a physician, you really depend on each other in your department because you depend on them when you have a tough case, or at least you should feel comfortable to depend on your colleagues when you have a tough case. So you could ask for help. You depend on them to accommodate your needs. If you're sick and somebody has to cover your call shifts, a leave, or whatever time you might need to take off because you're sick, you have surgery without punishment, right? You depend on them when there is badness happening. You know, again, peer support is the number one thing that makes a difference when we have complicated cases, when we have, you know, lawsuits, when we have complaints. We need peer support. We need to be valued by our peers. So if you really think about it, a department is like a family. Healthy families have boundaries. Healthy families also are like a secure base where you can go to, to your older sibling or your parent and you could get advice, you could get some support. You know, you feel safe when you pick up the phone and you call mom or dad and after that phone call you get off and you feel like, okay, I have some clarity, I know what to do. A healthy department is like that. And a healthy department has emotional safety, meaning that you could call up your colleague and say, listen, I'm not sure about this. Or, you know, listen, what do you think? You know, like that's a healthy department. In a healthy department, doing this as a kind of a 
session, a wellness session for crisis planning for when we encounter bad events should not be an issue. It could, you know, a couple hours with potentially a leader leading this, whether it's from the department, outside of the department, ideally outside of the department, allow everybody in the department to be in equal and participate, but it should not be a problem. It should be fine. If we anticipate that this is a problem, that means that this department does not necessarily have the psychological safety. And that means that there are members of the family who are either abusive, unpredictable, inconsistent, manipulative, threatening, whatever it might be. There are bad apples that make everybody else feel unsafe, everybody else can be an issue. So that's a bigger reflection on the department itself. Because if we're talking about supporting during bad times, again, it's like, how do we expect a family to be a source of support during financial stress or relationship issues somebody might have if the family in itself has abuse and issues, right? And so should the issue be a bigger discussion on identifying, you know, pathological behavior in the department. You know, again, like in psychiatry, do we need family therapy before we say you could rely and call on your brother or your mother? And and sometimes the department is just so unwell where it's like the extent of sexual abuse between family members. You can't fix that family member. Like that's just not fixable. That's not going to ever be a place of support. So it's the same in some departments. You know, some departments, the abuse between members is just so bad. The animosity, the manipulation, the, you know, everybody's just terrified that the department in itself is causing a vulnerability so that when something bad happens, that physician cannot turn to the family for support or even rely what the family's put in is supportive. So, so again, we have to be realistic. We can't live in a fantasy. We have to be realistic about what is the department like? Is this ever going to be a family where we could expect reasonable support? Or there has to be some serious work on the department before we could even expect this. You know, because again, a lot of physicians feel really frustrated when some of these wellness initiatives are done. There are more platitudes. And when they actually try to use this and it's either used against them or it's seen as, again, they're weak or they're, you know, broken or they're whatever. And again, their vulnerability and using some kind of a bonus initiative is used against them months later. And it just traumatizes them even more. In, again, we can't expect true genuine changes to come if there's no emotional psychological safety or if somebody using their safety plan is going to be used against them down the road. You know, and I've seen and so some departments could be very supportive. And in some departments, you could see in Ontario, some department chairs reporting somebody taking time off for mental health to our college when it's not mandatory. It just shows the pathology in the department because, you know, you only have to report to the college if there is, you know, impairment. No, but if the physician preemptively says, look, I'm going off on medical leave or I'm, I need time off, that actually shows they're taking care of their mental or physical health because it could be both. And for somebody to go and report that leave to the college, that shows potential vindictiveness, potentially trying to use that medical leave to get rid of somebody of the department, potential lack of understanding of accommodation 
any disability on the person who's supposed to be running this department. If that is the chair of the department with that little understanding of supporting wellness and health, how can this department have anything as wellness and, and health and let the physicians trust? Because when I mention psychological, emotional safety, that means that it's trust. I can trust other people. I can trust that if I say something or I do something that they might not agree with, that I'm not going to have repercussions, punishments, dismissal. And to have in wellness initiatives, there has to be psychological safety and emotional safety in the part. Meaning that if I say, you know, this has been a tough case, I need to feel safe that weeks down the road, people are not talking about me in the corner. People are not using my name with the residents to say that I cracked or that I can't handle or that whatever else. Because people have done it. You know, I've seen it all the time. Yeah. What an interesting conversation we've gotten to. Um, thank you for chatting around this. I think this is really an important thing that we often, frankly, don't talk about as physicians. You do more than I do because you're in the business of helping physicians in their wellness journeys. But we started off talking about radical acceptance, and then mm -hmm. we moved on to, okay, so now we know bad things are going to happen. That's just the nature of life, and that's the nature of the jobs that we have all chosen. How can we, if we need to, modify what we're doing to mm -hmm. perhaps decrease that, if that's what we feel we need? Um, and then next, how do we look forward to the future to actually create an adverse event plan, oh, unexpected yeah. adverse event yeah. plan? Yeah. And in a bigger sense, how do we know that we can rely on our peers to support us. Who are those peers going to be? And if that's a department issue, then maybe we need to look at our department and the health and the wellness of our department as a whole, because that is, I think, often a, a big issue for some physicians, unfortunately. Thank you so much for having that yeah. discussion. No, it's a pleasure. And again, an adverse event plan, people should make it individuals to them because they might have existing therapists. They might have existing support so we don't have to necessarily force it and sometimes adverse event plan might include like literally for them to have some time to walk their dog and they're you know don't we can't underestimate pets like pets could be such a great source of support and distress tolerance for so many people and it's just literally allowing people to individually think of when you're having tough emotions and things are really tough what do you need to do to, do to get through this because again, that's another emphasis, right? Because this position, you know, expect to just suck it up and move on versus, no, we're accepting, radically accepting that you're going to have an emotional reaction after this event. It's totally normal to have a reaction. Your reaction is going to depend on previous experiences, you know, your own understanding of this and, you know, so many personal factors, as well as, again, some systemic factors, like is it going to be college complaints, going to be hospital complaints, going to be this. What do you need? to tolerate those emotions and to get through that. Because again, part of DBT is everything's temporary. Every badness is temporary. It's like a wave, you know, that initial wave of all the emotions, fear, stuff like that is huge. And then it pipes up again when, the, you know, hospital complaint, college complaint, if there is any, or any funeral or anything else or any other kind of connection to that, right? And just, what do you need to do when those waves come in? Yeah, that's awesome. Thank you so much for okay. chatting with me today. Well, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for connecting with me this morning. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of Pregnancy for Professionals. Make sure to share this podcast with your colleagues and head on over to wherever you listen to podcasts to give us a five-star review if you think we're worth it. And also, please make sure to fill out the quick survey below to let us know what topics you want to hear more about. Have a great day.